Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jumpstart. Our world is changing fast, and in a time that is forcing positive change, my friends at Jumpstart, a national early education nonprofit, believe that the need for the quality education will only increase, with nearly 25% of all children across the country living in poverty and the widening opportunity gap due to the extended out-of-school time. Jumpstart, whose vision is every child in America, enters kindergarten prepared to succeed, teams up with 79 colleges, universities, and community partners across 15 states to provide early learning for over 13,000 preschool kids in underserved community. At the core of their work is literacy. Their global Read for the Record campaign in the fall engages over 2 million people worldwide to highlight the importance of early literacy and make high-quality books accessible for all children, no matter their color, socioeconomic status, or zip code. Read for the Record participants are encouraged to read the selected book on the same day. This year's campaign book, Evelyn Del Rey is Moving Away, teaches kids about the power of connection, lasting friendships, and coping with change. To all mamas, daddies, educators, book lovers, and beyond, you can support this crucial campaign by visiting readfortherecord.org to purchase the book, donate, or support a classroom in need. Laura Lippman, the best-selling crime novelist, has now come out with a book of essays called My Life as a Villainess, which it's just a fantastic book. Laura was a reporter for 20 years, including 12 years at the Baltimore Sun. She began writing novels while working full-time and published seven books about accidental P.I. Tess Moynihan before leaving daily journalism in 2001. Her work has been awarded the Edgar, the Anthony, the Agatha, the Seamus, the Nero Wolf, Gumshoe, and Barry Awards. And she's also been nominated for many other prizes in the crime fiction field. She was the first ever recipient of the Mayor's Prize for Literary Excellence and the first genre writer recognized as Author of the Year by the Maryland Library Association. A graduate of Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, Miss Littman returned to Baltimore in 1989 and has lived there ever since. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. I'm really honored. Oh, well, I was just starting to tell you, I really loved your book. I love essay collections and I like couldn't wait to read it. And I was almost disappointed because originally it was supposed to come out in May, right? And then it was pushed back. And so I was like, well, I'll wait to read it till it's closer. And it was just sitting there. So anyway, I'm thrilled it came out. It's so good. Anyway, (laughs) my life as a villainess, can you tell listeners what this collection of essays is essentially about and, and what encouraged you to write it after being such a successful crime novelist for so long? I really kind of backed into this. There wasn't a plan. I wasn't looking at writing an essay book. What I wanted to do, it it sounds so mercenary, I'm kind of embarrassed. Writing personal essays has become sort of the marketing plan for novelists. And when you have a novel coming out, they say, can you write about this? Can you write about that? And about two years ago, I said, okay, I want to think about this differently. I don't want to write essays about crime fiction because I'm already reaching those readers, I hope. 
I hope I'm reading crime readers, and if I'm not, things are really screwed up. And I thought, how do I get myself out in front of people who think they don't read crime fiction? Because I think there are a lot of readers who would love certain crime novels if they just understood how wide and broad the genre was and how there really is something for everyone. There is some, I mean, for even the most literary reader, there are crime novels that would appeal to them. You just sort, and so I thought if I could get my voice in front of people, people who liked my voice might think, well, I'll try one of her novels. So I was just looking at sort of trying to game the system in a sense. And I began by placing not so much personal essays, but I remember one of the first things I, I wrote was a piece about how much I loved the work of Ruth McKinney, who wrote my sister Eileen stories, and I thought was a little bit forgotten and unappreciated. And I wrote that for a column in the New York Times. I then asked my good friend, Taffy Burnes Rackner, to help me plan a travel story in the New York Times about my excessive devotion to Southwest Airlines. See that? See stepping and, you know, glamour.com asked me to write about how I felt trying to explain boys to my then eight-year-old daughter and things like that. And at one point I was up this would have been late in 2018. I was up late at night. My husband was away on business. I'd had a couple of glasses of wine. And I saw that there was a section on the Long Range site, which, you know, both curates and commissions long pieces about aging. And I thought, I have a story about aging that I've never read. And it's about being the oldest mom always. I was 51 when my daughter was born. I just, I have no contenders. I remember there was a mom in my neighborhood who said, I used to be the oldest mom before you showed up. She's 10 years younger than I am. And I pitched this to Sari Botten at Long Reads. And it took me four months to write it. But then when I did it, it kind of changed everything. It got a huge response. Sari asked me to write more pieces. The next piece I wrote was about body, posit body positivity. And at that point, my longtime editor, I've worked with the same editor for my novels for my entire career. We went to lunch with my agent and she said, do you think you have a book of essays in you? And I, I said that thing that you should never say was, how hard could it be? <laughs> <laughs> I'll never say that again, but I did. It turned out, I mean, there were, I think there were seven essays that had been published before in the book one of which had been written and never been published, and that was the title essay, My Life as a Villainess. And then I generated seven new essays over last summer and last fall, and that became this book. Wow. So how did it feel from shifting from creating worlds to revealing the inner workings of your own? It was really different. I never worried about exposure. If I'm writing about something, I'm ready to talk about it. I, you know, and I still have plenty of secrets I've kept and stories I haven't told. I don't feel obliged to tell all. I don't, I don't think any writer is obliged to do that. I have taken to talking about this collection as I used an approach that I had learned about when I was a reporter, where there are kind of two ways to go about investigative reporting. One is you get a great tip. Someone says, did you know? And you follow that. The other way you can develop stories as an investigative reporter, which I never was, by the way, but found it interesting, is you can pick a topic so big you're going to find something. So in this book, I just picked topics that were so big, I knew I would have something to say about them, 
I seldom knew what that was when I sat down. And for the process of writing these essays, it would often take weeks to find out the starting point. That was certainly true in the case of Game of Crones, you know, the <laughs> essay about being an old mom. Where does it start? It starts with the fact that my daughter was a week old when people started asking if I was her grandmother and how I dealt with that. And where did I go from there? You know, who would imagine that a piece about body positivity would begin with a story about me being 15 years old and hiding in a corner of Walden books, reading that I was too embarrassed to buy because I thought they were fake insulations. I mean, what does that have to do with anything? And what's really interesting is then you find these things. I'm a big collector of folk art. I have always loved folk art and outsider art. I just this morning celebrated my publication day by buying a piece of folk art by Purvis Young. And folk art is about found opportunities. It's about found materials. And it's about allowing yourself as a writer to discover these potent thematic motifs that run through your life. So I remember reading the book Green Gage Summer, and I'm writing this about body positivity. And then I go back and I reread Green Gage Summer. And it's literally a novel that begins with a story about people overeating, gorging themselves on these Green Gage plums. And so that, as I wrote each essay, I was like mining these opportunities, was like looking for these things that were always there. There are things as a novelist, you'd be like, that's too on the nose. I can't use that. That's so obvious. But then in real life, you're like, that's amazing. <laughs> I love that. And I loved your thoughts on body positivity and basically how you've decided that it's okay to call yourself a knockout at any age and like you're just going to own it. I just, I was hoping I could just read this quick quote if I could find it. Let's see, page 14. Hold on. You said, what is new is that I have decided at the age of 60 that I am a goddamn knockout. Like Dorothy at the end of the film version of The Wizard of Oz, I had the power I sought all along. I rub my thighs together, sorry, couldn't resist, and tell myself over and over that I am beautiful. And what do you know? Suddenly I am. <laughs> it's so great. It, and I really believe that. And I, it, had, it changed my life when I was able to put those words on paper, one of the things I learned writing this essay collection is that if I'm writing about something, I, I, I have come to terms with it on some level. I'm cool with it. I'm cool with being a mom. I, I, I'm actually delighted with the body I have. I've made some, I wouldn't call it peace, but I've certainly learned to talk about menopause, which I think is interesting is there's just, I said to someone recently, the weird thing about menopause is there is too much that has been written about it. There's not enough that's been written about it. And, you know, woman after woman comes into this transition and there's this one great book that everybody reads, which is sort of like the omnibus Christian Northrup book. And then there's some really good comic books like Sandra Tsinglo's Mad Woman in a Volvo, which is mm -hmm. hilarious. But there's a lot of relevant information that it says like, so like, but by the time I wrote about menopause, it's like, I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it. And, and, and just talking about it because it, that was, of all the topics in the book, I hated talking about menopause when it happened to me. And I did, at, at first, it felt almost shameful. And I was like, my God, how many shame-induced episodes do women have to go through in their lives about their bodies? So I kind of was owning it, as people say. Certainly, yeah, every essay in the book was something I was working out for the first time, you know, friendships between 
writers. They can be friendships or they can be rivalries. And it was fascinating to me that I had this other writer who is my like imaginary rival. But then I met her and she became one of my dearest, dearest friends. And in fact, Anne Hood is someone who taught me an awful lot about how to write personal essays just by the example of the brilliant personal essays she puts out in the world. I love how you sort of reflect on friendships and you're so self-deprecating in this book, which is like really endearing actually about how you're just such a bad friend and like, you know, (laughs) you don't don't blame anyone for like ditching you or ghosting you or whatever because you deserve it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because some friends, of course, have said, Laura, you're not that bad a friend. (laughs) Like there's some people who I would say that have been conspicuous in not disavowing my portrait as a bad friend. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I wasn't the best friend to you. And I'm, I'm still mixed up about that. And that's something I, you know, I said I've worked these things out. With friendship, I've worked out the fact that this is a place where I often fail. And I'm still working on it. I think the great lie about friendship is that it comes naturally. Mm. Like we've got to do it. And once you're, you have a friend, you should be friends for life. And it would only end if something catastrophic happened. If there was a huge betrayal or some really big falling out over values and major issues. And that's not my experience. Friends that I've lost, there's been no major falling out. What has happened is that I, again, and I sort of defend myself a little bit, which is I think people take my inertia as a lack of interest. And it's like, no, I'm just kind of inert. But anytime a friend turns to me, I'm there for them. But am I the person who always remembers to pick up the phone and check in? No, I'm not. I'm not that person. But heck, as long as I'm alive, I could maybe do it better. So there's that. And your trainer gave you like the best advice of all of like, <laughs> pick the friends who would bury a body for you or would help you bury a body. That's just so great. Because I was like, writing this question, I was thinking, which of my friends would bury a body for me? I don't know. I feel like not that many. <laughs> a lot of my friends would want to start stop short of the criminal conspiracy. And I mentioned Nancy in particular in the essay that Nancy would not want to actually commit a crime with me, but she would do everything in her power to make sure that I had the best criminal representation. I feel like another really, really good friend I have is a crime writer, terrific novelist named Alifair Burke, who's a former prosecutor. And I know, I know that if I commit a crime, Alifair's not going to go all in on the criminal conspiracy, but she will get me the best criminal attorney to represent me. She will be advising me every step of the way about what to do in my criminal case. She's not going to actually cross the line into committing a crime. She's, she's much too upstanding a citizen for that. <laughs> but that's okay. You need that right. too. <laughs> Another totally important part of the process. <laughs> you also were really interestingly about your relationship and sort of the power dynamic in your marriage. You said, the man who would become my second husband desired a child, so I made a child happen. That's our dynamic. He writes checks, I make things happen. As noted, I have money of my own, but he out-earns me by a factor of 10 to 1, so this arrangement seems fair to me. I just wanted to talk about that because in this whole sort of like feminist boom, I just wanted to address something that, not that it's unfeminist, just I just wanted to like see what you thought about it. So again, if I'm writing about it on some level, I've worked it out. And there was a time in which I would look at the proportion of childcare that I did and the proportion that my spouse did 
which by the way is very different now. In the pandemic, it has been truly 50-50 because he hasn't been working on a production. And it has been gratifying and amazing to know that he will do that when his job allows him to do it. Mm-hmm. And he really has a job that is a kind of a time suck that you haven't seen it up close, you can't imagine it. Like, you know, I've tried to describe it to some people and people will be like, could he do this? Could he do that? And like, he really could not. It's like, <laughs> and there was a time when I was kind of obsessed with that, which I was very obsessed with the imbalance in the time of he gets to spend 12 to 16 hours a day on what he's creating. And I don't have that same luxury. And then it really turned around in my head. I don't think that's a luxury. I think that's a burden. And I think it's a particular burden of the patriarchy to create this idea that creation is best when we are almost monk-like in our existence. If we have families, we're ignoring them, or maybe we don't have families at all, or, you know, this whole kind of Picasso is the great artist, crummy man template. And what I had to come to realize was that, first of all, the patriarchy is enormously unfair to men who are cast into this idea that they're not benefiting from it. And they're really actually, I think, suffering for it. And then I began to ask myself, it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm getting my work done. I'm getting it done in these bits and pieces of time. You know, I have the hours that my daughter's in school or used to. Now with distance learning, I've had to learn a different way to do it. I have enough time to do my work, bake the cookies for the bake sale, work out. I mean, you know, almost nothing gets between me and an exercise. And I'm writing the books that I want to write. And I actually think they're as good as I can make them. And whatever limitations I find in myself as a creative person, they're not connected to time. And then it was, then the next leap is, good God, what if my books are better because of the life of living? What if the richness and fullness of my life informs my books and that they have a level to them that they wouldn't have if I were living a monk-like existence? So, yeah, it's, you know, it's true. It, on some level, it sounds not feminist. But on another level, I think that we were living a life in which we had unwittingly subscribed to these patriarchal values. And it's still, you know, I still don't see how we could ever be 50-50 in time when he's active on a production. I don't see that as being possible. But now that I know that he can step up and do 50-50, it's really meaningful to me. And it's been one of those bizarre silver linings in the pandemic for my household. My household has had more together time in the past six months when, than we had in the previous five years. Wow. I love what you just said also about, you know, maybe the lack of time makes things better. I feel like there's this huge myth that like if we could lock ourselves in a cabin, we would be writing, you know, the great American novel every single time and looking, I mean, you're, you, you already have achieved that and in the way that you do it. And I've talked to so many authors who feel the same way. People who wrote it in the back of like Wendy Walker who wrote books in the back of her minivan. And, you know, just, this is like, you fit it in when you can. And I feel like it's almost the difference between, you know, being a reporter sort of out and about being like back in an office trying to describe something versus like being out there and being a witness to it. So when I worked at the newspaper, the people with children 
in particular moms who were incredibly efficient about their work. They were just more efficient because they had no time to waste. They had to be out the door at a certain time and at school or daycare for pickup. And if they were late, there was a financial penalty. So they didn't waste time. And the rest of us, we wasted a lot of time because we didn't have that sort of sort of Damocles hanging over us. And, you know, one of the funny, funny, strange, odd, bizarre things about the pandemic is it sort of forced me to come full circle. I began by writing novels while I had a full-time job. I'd get up at six in the morning. I'd do my writing. I'd go to work. And I would say to myself, whatever happens now, I got my writing time in. And I would try to write a thousand to two thousand words a day. Well, come the pandemic, by mid-March, my daughter has switched to learning from home. And I have a book due. It's actually great. And it's late because I wrote My Life as a Villainess, sort of put it to the side while I did that. And I started getting up at five in the morning and working through three to four hours. My daughter was sleeping in pretty reliably until eight and school had changed its schedule. And so there I was, full circle, and it still worked. It was, and it was, still, it was actually still immensely satisfying at eight o'clock in the morning to say, I got my work done. And maybe I'll have a chance to come back and do more work this afternoon, depending on how the video learning is lining up and what my daughter is interested in. But it was not bad to know that that way of doing things was something I could go back to and still feel very effective and productive. That's great. So no one can use time as an excuse anymore. <laughs> Yeah, that goes back to Tilly Olson. I mean, Tilly Olson wrote about this in her famous book, which of course is flying out of my head, me and Tails. But you know, she had a full-time job. She was commuting on the subway. She had kids. She, and it was like, you will find time to write if you really want to. And I think that was one of the things that chagrined a lot of people who went into the forced lockdown of the pandemic and said, well, now I have this luxury of time. That can really be a burden. When you have all the time in the world, where's the urgency? You just keep procrastinating. And I made that mistake as a young writer. I'd say, I'm going to write all weekend. I can't write all weekend. I, I can write for about four hours tops. I'm wrung out at four hours. And so I've learned to be, you know, my little streaky self of two to three hours, two to three hours, two to three hours. And eventually I get there. But look at how they build up. I mean, you have a huge, like you have a library of, of production, you know, like a, a factory worth. It's, it's impressive. How do you stay on track normally? I know we're in pandemic mode, but like to keep producing at your rate, what is the motivation? Like, how do you stay? I know you're late now, but let's pretend you're not. Like, how do you stay on, on time and all that? How do you just keep doing it and making your books different and interesting and all the rest? Well, the first part is I have a very simple goal. My goal is to write a thousand words a day. Sounds like as a former reporter, that is a big weather story. That's like a weather story that you write. <laughs> it's a thousand words a day if you've been a reporter as I have. It doesn't, it's not that intimidating. Some people would find that impossible. So it's a minimum, it's a quota. And that's in the early part where you're just sort of blamming through, just getting the words on the page, do something, do something, keep going forward. And then after that, I'll set goals for revision. It could be a chapter a day. It could be this many pages a day. But I'll work through it. And I try to do, I do quite a bit of revision before my editor sees it. I would certainly hope that she's seeing the third, if not fourth version of what I write. And so that takes anywhere from 10 to 16 months. That would be my range. 
then the other part of the question was, how does one stay inspired? How does one do it differently? It's very important to me to do it differently. I really never want someone to read one of my novels and feel like it's an iteration of a novel that I've written before because there are certainly some really successful crime novelists where I felt bad about their long-running series and I was sad for that. So the way I handle that is I just turn my gaze inward and I'm saying, and I say, what's really interesting to me right now? What am I really interested in? When I wrote the novel that's coming out next year, a novel that by circumstance was forced to be set in 2019, I was conceiving of it as something that was just sort of vaguely in the now, but that can't be anymore. I was really interested in how isolated I find a lot of modern people. And I was interested in particular in the concept of isolation in a place where there are lots of people, where you can actually see people, like like living in a high-rise apartment building in Baltimore. You're literally surrounded by people. You can see people coming and going and living their lives. But what if you are isolated? And how does social media play into that? For me, social media is a boon against isolation. But if you disdain it, of course, it can't help you at all. So I was just interested in those ideas of isolation. I also had sort of a little challenge for myself as I wanted to write something that felt almost more horror-tinged, even though it is a crime novel. And I would say to myself, okay, so this is a little bit misery in a high rise. And so that's how that book started. I've already started. It's really premature. I wouldn't talk about it yet. But I can feel the tingle of the next idea. It arrived early. I wasn't even looking for it because I still have to go through copy edits. And I'm a big believer that you, having turned a book in, having done my revisions, let the well refill itself, you know, see what happens. And I was in a conversation with my husband the other night, simply talking about the challenge of, will the next book be pre-pandemic or post-pandemic? You know, what are the challenges of trying to write a book about the times we're in right now? And if I don't do that, am I a coward? And I started talking about another part of our fairly recent history that I thought had some lessons for the time we're living in now. And all of a sudden, by the next morning, I had my notebook open and I was jotting down ideas like, why would she do that? What's the big secret? What would make this plausible? And I'm like, I think think I've got it. That's great. Well, that's amazing. I mean, there you go. (laughs) I just wanted to read one more thing from you before I leave you alone here about what it's like. Well, here, I'm just going to read it and we'll, we'll talk about it. It has taken me more than 40 years, but the singular achievement of my life may be that if I am attacked by a serial killer on a deserted lover's lane, I almost certainly will have had dessert. Not cheesecake because I don't like cheesecake. Possibly some dark chocolate, preferably with nuts or caramel, or a scoop of Taharka ice cream, an outstanding Baltimore brand, or one of my own homemade blondies from the Smitten Kitchen recipe. Maybe a shot of tequila, an excellent digest teeth. Maybe tequila and a blondie, but only if I want those things. <laughs> so I feel like this is just so classic. You have like come into your own in every way, and just like you're in full on like self acceptance. This is what I love. This is who I am. It's ama- it's totally inspiring and amazing because I feel like a lot of people, no matter what age they are, never get that. And I guess some people get there very early, but either way, it's an amazing example. How beautiful to get there early. It's the one thing I can't 
you know, I can't judge myself and I wouldn't judge anyone else for it. When do you cross that line? What makes it possible? As the mother of a daughter, it's so important to me that she love herself. And, but I also, I accept that that's a very personal thing. I mean, I can say and do a lot of the right things and I hope I am saying and doing them. But in the end, it's going to come down to her decision to love herself and what will make, you know, I'm trying to provide an environment in which that's possible. You know, it, it, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned where I said, I just, I've just decided, sure, I'm beautiful. One of my longtime readers and someone I consider a friend, someone from Australia, we've met at conferences, we've had drinks together. When we're on the rare occasion we are face to face, we always try to find, you know, 15, 30 minutes for each other. She jumped on a Facebook thread about this essay and she mentioned that she had had a photograph taken and she didn't like it. And her friends at work were saying, no, that's a terrible photo. You're beautiful. And she said, and I thought, this is pretty great and amazing. She said, I'm not beautiful. And I don't need to be told that. I don't consider beauty to be an important metric for women. And so telling me I'm beautiful when I know that I'm not is patronizing. It's like, I like myself. I like how I look. You can have an unflattering photo and not consider yourself to be beautiful. And you can also decide that you don't consider being beautiful to be important. And I was like, wow, that's truly wise. She's gone down a level deeper on this, which is to say, not only am I going to reject conventional ideas about what beauty is, I'm going to reject beauty as being important. And I thought that was pretty great. And I was really, I was really proud to know her and be her friend and to know that she would share something like that. That's awesome. Love that. Do you have any parting advice to aspiring authors? So my main advice to aspiring writers, it's what I tell my classes all the time. And I teach at um, a writer's workshop that meets in Florida every January. Fingers crossed we'll be able to meet again this year. At the end of the class, I always say to them, look, whatever your ambition is, however grandiose it is, the more grandiose, the better. I want you to tell at least one other sentient human. If you have to get drunk to do it, go ahead and get drunk to do it. Tell someone what you want. And it can be whatever you want. It can be winning the Nobel Prize. It can be being a New York Times bestseller. What the real dream is, though, it has to be your real dream. And, and I say, please say this out loud. Because if you can't admit to at least one other person and to yourself what you want to get out of this, I don't see how you're going to make it happen. So articulate your dreams. And I'm not, and don't make them realistic or with it. Just like, this is what I want. And then you've got a goal to reach for. There you go. I recently decided that I want to try to win an Emmy, even though I don't have a TV show. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? There's a category out there for like interview show and some people on YouTube are nominated this year. And I'm like, why not me? I don't know. Let's give it a try. Oh, exactly. So anyway, as long as you're not afraid to, to fail publicly, which I apparently am not, <laughs> then you might as well say it. So anyway. Well, Laura, thank you so much. You're such an inspiration on a lot of different levels for me. And I am just so glad I got to enjoy your book and that I got to talk to you about your whole career and everything. So thank you for everything. Thank you. Love talking to you. I really am honored to be on your show. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Bye. 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 
Thanks again to Jumpstart, whose campaign Read for the Record begins this fall. Go to readfortherecord.org to purchase Evelyn Del Rey is Moving Away to help donate and support a classroom in need and help Jumpstart reach their goal of achieving early literacy for everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 